0: Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence Fixed Income Credit Currency and commodities Strategists and Analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC Research Team. For the past few years, U.S. infrastructure had become something of a punchline in American politics. But that changed late last year with the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act which added about $550 billion of additional infrastructure spending. On this month's podcast, we're joined by Henry Cisneros, who has been a champion for U.S. infrastructure investment for decades. He was the mayor of San Antonio before leading the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. He's also the chairman of American Triple Partners. On this month's podcast, we're joined by Henry Cisneros, who has been a champion for U.S. infrastructure investment for decades. He was the mayor of San Antonio before leading the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. I'm joined by Henry and co-host Eric Kazatsky. Henry, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Amanda, thank you. And Eric, uh, glad you're aboard as well. Thank you.
0: So yeah, it's very exciting times for, for infrastructure spending um, nationally. And so Henry, I want to kind of talk a little bit about how you got your start in, in politics in San Antonio. And I know that you kind of consider yourself to be an infrastructure mayor. So I want to talk a little bit about what that means, and just kind of how that role as a mayor informed, you know, the rest of your career.
1: Well, Amanda, thank you for the opportunity to be with you. And I would say that your first question begins with a kind of a non sequitur. Using the word exciting and infrastructure in the same sentence is not usual. In fact, infrastructure is frequently called the gray lady of governmental uh, projects or the gray lady of of, of urban affairs, because it's that part of the structure of our society that we don't see, but we expect it to function. Uh, Infrastructure is the water systems, the power grid, the mass transit, the street system, the uh, ports, the airports. Um, Nowadays, that definition has been expanded to include broadband uh, and renewable power, for example. Uh, But it also includes a whole range of things that people call social infrastructure, like uh, higher education facilities, hospitals uh schools uh and, and and a whole host of other things so it, it is a broad definition but it's basically everything that's built into our society that we need to function i got excited about infrastructure when i was mayor of san antonio and we undertook a number of projects to build the economy of the city and there's a tight relationship between infrastructure and economy of a city, the economics of the country. Basically, the economy can't function without those underpinnings that I just described. Whether it's rapid communications or whether it's the ability to move people and cargo or whether it's a dependability of things like water and power. It's 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 essential. As mayor, my principal goal and it's what I ran on, what I got elected on, what I what I you know built an administration on was increasing the number of jobs, raising incomes, and using the economy to create a better quality of life in the city at large. And I quickly discovered that you can't do that without some of these essential underpinnings. For example, we were in the project process of adding a power source to our grid, which had been coal and gas, and that was nuclear power. And it took a lot of my time to focus on getting a nuclear project complete. On my watch as mayor, we added a terminal at the airport. We double-decked the freeway system in the downtown. We added a tunnel under the San Antonio Walk so that the water on the Riverwalk could have floodwaters diverted and be constant. We uh, uh, doubled the size of the convention center. We added a 65,000-seat dome stadium. So a whole host of concrete things that I think have served the city well in the years since. Now, infrastructure is not the whole game in a city. It's the underpinnings. But then you have to add the other fist, if you will, and that is education and training and and, and, and development of people who can take the jobs that are created. Uh, and you have to stay current. It's not enough to fix the freeways for, 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 a, for a decade. You've got to fix them for 30 years and 40 years and 50 years, then you have to realize that it's not just freeways, but it's also uh, mass transit, for example, advanced rapid rail or bus transit. So it's a very dynamic field and uh, it's right now, it's more dynamic than ever. And I'll close with this thought. It's more dynamic than ever because as you know, we're witnessing a whole new host of technologies of all kinds communications technologies, materials technologies, all kinds, and those are being incorporated in the next generation of infrastructure. So for example, if you want to talk about uh, electric power and electric distribution in a city, it's not the same conversation that it was five years ago. It's now wind and solar and what they call the interactive grid, where people can have solar power and sell it back into the grid. and. Many other things. Almost every dimension of infrastructure is going to be impacted as a point of inflection by the new technologies that can be applied to it. So we're, we're not just building more. We're building
2: different, better, faster for the society. So I have a question. I mean, do you think that there's a way for the public finance sector to get involved in the expansion of all this, aside from sort of just the regular sort of good maintenance housekeeping issuance that comes each year? I mean, the things you're talking about, these technological advancements, it seems like that's right for like P3 type projects, right? It is,
1: uh, but principally in the United States, most of the infrastructure has been supported either by federal dollars, like the interstate highway system, for example, or the money that went to the airports, or the money to build the ports, or it has been funded by uh, localities that do bond issues to to improve their road system or to build uh, police substations or, or whatever. Uh, many parts of the world are far ahead of us with respect to bringing private capital to infrastructure. I think it's coming our way for this reason: the American. Uh, civil engineering society gives our infrastructure a a grade of C minus compared to the rest of the world. And they say the gap to get that C minus to acceptable or a B would be about $2.6 trillion. We don't have that much money in the public sector (laughs) to close that gap. So if we're smart, we're going to be thinking about creative ways to bring private capital, which means Pension systems, investments, uh, insurance company investments, anything that can handle long-term investments and doesn't need a 21% rate of return like private equity, but something more like 8 or 10 or 12, uh, there's, there's room for that in our infrastructure system.
2: How come you don't think that model has been adopted more readily, I guess, in the US, right? We're talking more like a traditional European model of financing where they've welcomed the outside capital coming in. Um, well, there's some countries that have really done it well, like Australia. Yeah,
1: I mean, their airports are privately managed. They have a, what they call a superannuation system of pensions that goes almost directly into infrastructure type work. Perhaps the most renowned name in infrastructure in the world, private firm, is Macquarie for example, but it is also true in England and in Spain and in uh, a, a major parts of Europe that there's a, a much more robust infrastructure investment. Why hasn't it happened in the United States? Good question. Part of it is we, we, we haven't had a national uh, framework. We have 50 states with different rules. And so national companies have a hard time operating with different rules in every state. Some encourage infrastructure, some don't. So there's that problem. Then there is the belief uh, on the part of some interest. I'm very, very respectful of American labor, but labor has always felt that you can't trust the private sector. And so they're, they're, they're more than happy to support projects that are funded by public resources, but not so excited about working with private investment banks or, or private equity. Uh, And then the public itself, we call ourselves a centrist country that leans slightly to the right and respects business more than it does government. But on this question of how do we fund our infrastructure, I think the public itself is a little nervous to to embrace uh, options that might cost money uh, because somebody's gotta pay back the private investment, right? So, that it, it, toll roads people notoriously don't like toll roads, right? Uh, or airports because you have to pay the fees from landing fees and concessions. So, it's complicated. And our psyche as a country has not yet adjusted to the fact that there's an awful lot of capital sitting on the sidelines that could be invested in infrastructure, but it has to be repaid. And the trick is to get the balance exactly right so that we get those returns in a reasonable level. And there's a lot of benefits that come from private investment, like bringing private firms that really know what they're doing and can meet deadlines and and, and help reduce costs and bring the latest technology uh, and good management, et cetera. Uh, I think we're going to get there as a country. I think we're on the edge, I have said, of a golden moment for America's infrastructure. This is kind of like the 1930s, when a whole series of things like, if you're a New Yorker, the East Side Highway and uh, the airports and the bridges, etc., were built back in the LaGuardia era, right? We are approaching an era when so many things have to be replaced or there is such a great opportunity to, to replace them, to build with new technologies that, that I think uh, – the model of private financing is going to become more acceptable. I certainly think, you certainly like, see an exciting picture, right, Amanda? I, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think it's very exciting. I think if, if we don't let ourselves be distracted by other things like our political contentiousness or uh, some climactic disaster that we haven't anticipated properly or, or, or even the national security environment, if Russia and China – go off the rails and we're in national security crisis barring that we've got some fantastic days ahead economically and i think also demographically you know the the, the demographics allow for the first time in american history we're at a point where more and more people are judged on the basis of what they can contribute what they can do women in a role they've never had before minorities in a place they've never had before this could be a really, really golden moment for the country if it's if we do it right.
0: Well, I was just going to say, you mentioned LaGuardia, and I feel like the redevelopment of um, LaGuardia has made a lot of New Yorkers believers in infrastructure yeah. investment. It's a beautiful now. thing, isn't it? And, so- and, and,
1: and it was pretty amazing. First of all, Eric, that does include private investment. That was several companies, including, I think, Carlisle, that brought private capital to that And it's a beautiful result. I mean, what they had to do technologically to keep the airport functioning and build over the existing terminals. Mm -hmm. I I came through LaGuardia about a week, about two weeks ago. And as I was walking across that bridge way up in the air, it must be 20 stories in the air that crosses over from the terminals to the other side. I stopped for a moment, even though I was rushing went to the window and just looked at it because it, it looks like something you would see in Shanghai or Dubai or, 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 or somewhere else, but not LaGuardia. <laughs> <laughs> and there it is. And there it is. And, the, and Kennedy's coming next. Yeah. Uh, the two, the multiple terminals, my company is involved, American Triple I, where I which I chair, is involved in uh, Terminal 6 and 7 at JFK Again, with private capital, Vantage Airport Group, RXR, a a big uh, infrastructure real estate group in New York. Um, And that's private capital is going to be the way that's done. And it's a major addition uh, for New York. Newark will probably follow after that. So um, a lot, a lot, a lot coming. We have the Gateway Project in line to link uh, the New Jersey and the New York side. We've got uh, new uh, cross-borough uh, throughways being built. We've got replacement of water lines that literally are a hundred years old. We've got new broadband projects underway. Um, I'd say this is a time of renewal.
0: Where does the? Um... So I'll use the acronym, the IIJA. So the Infrastructure and Investment Jobs Act, it's kind of a mouthful. Um, Where does that legislation come into all of this? And what are you um, excited about with um, that legislation, which is a multi-year spending effort?
2: Well,
1: first of all, as I said earlier, the national gap estimated by the uh, Engineering Council is $2.6 trillion. So the bill that you described, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, funded 550 billion. So about a fifth, if you will, of the 2.6 shortfall, right? But when you add that new spending with other authorized programs that were also funded, the number's more like 1.2 trillion. So we're almost half, 1.2 trillion out of 2.6 toward meeting the gap. So it's very, very significant. now most of that is going to be in the form of governmental spending for things that you really can't do with private capital, like bridges, for example, or roads that are not tolled, toll roads, and uh, water systems. Uh, We still have water systems, as I said, that are very old, and we've had toxic toxic incidents, as we had recently in Jackson, Mississippi, before that in Flint, Michigan. Um, So a good part of that money is going to go to those kinds of things. But there's also a lot of money in the package for um, energy, uh, what they call transitional energy, which is moving toward electric vehicles, moving toward solar and, and wind, moving toward New battery technologies for storage, new methods of transmission of electricity. The second law that passed didn't get as much headlines as the Infrastructure Act, but it was called the deficit, or rather the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. That's just the name they put on it. But it had it was about 386 billion dollars, and about half of that was for new energy, clean Energy. And so. The government is going to build 500,000 EV charging stations. If you don't have EV charging stations proliferating in the country, you can't get to having electric vehicles be the primary vehicles because they don't have places to recharge. Now, we're told that the number that has to be built is more like two million. This act is going to do 500,000 of those. So about a quarter. what I'm—it's a long way of answering your question. There's a lot of money there. It's the most significant allocation to infrastructure ever in the United States, and and secondly, it is it is substantial but not enough on its own. So uh, that we need to keep looking for ways to fund the the, the infrastructure that we need for the future. But but you're going to see a lot of activity. You're going to see a lot of construction cranes, a lot of tractors a lot of torn up streets and uh, in in the next uh, five years.
2: You know, Henry, I just want to follow back on something you mentioned. So, you know, we're talking about, you know, sort of like cost to do things in the U S and obviously, you know, prevailing wage or or union labor is certainly one of those inputs that I guess has like a drag on how expensive things are to build in the U S. But I saw a study not long ago, and I think it was last, Year or 2021 article came out through Box. It showed like how much it costs to do like a lane mile uh, per millions from like 1960 and today, and that that dollar amount's grown by like five to six times. Yeah. And so, I guess the one thought I I have just with all the inflation talk and you know what's going on with interest rates is that a concern? Like we're on the precipice of all this fantastic. You know, sort of growth and, and sort of reinvestment opportunity, but do you think we'll be hampered by how expensive those things might actually be to sort of you know put into you know motion? Eric, I think it's a good a good
1: question you raise, and the answer, the simple answer, I think, is yes, that's going to be a problem because we do pay more per unit for almost every kind of infrastructure that we build compared to the past and compared to the rest of the world. Yes. And it, 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 while labor issues may be a part of that, that's not the whole problem. Uh, some of it is just, we have all kinds of restrictions and permitting delays, and all of those delays are money. It just costs more over time. And it costs years and years to get through all of the environmental clearances and the construction permitting and all of that. Now, we're trying to take some steps and do, for example, permitting that presently is done sequentially. So you gotta go through A to get to B, B to get to C, C to get to D. Why don't we do A, B, C, D together simultaneously at the same time, the state, the federal, the local, the special permits. Uh, And that's what uh, Senator Manchin has a bill right now to try to get the, uh, the permitting done. He's having a hard time getting it through. I think it will because it makes so much sense. It would be tragic to spend the amount of money we are on clean energy and then not be able to put the clean clean energy projects in place because we have these incredible delays and costs. So uh, th- there's some major, major changes that we need to be making along those lines. But otherwise, we're all gonna look like fools for making the, the, the case that we needed this money and making the case that the projects are so essential. And then when we have the money, can't put it to work because the system is is, is, is so encumbered.
0: Um, Henry, I know one of the the issues that you're really passionate about is obviously affordable housing, given, um, you know, your career, um, what are you hoping, and this kind of ties right into the infrastructure challenges we're facing. Like, what are you hoping to see, um, big cities do on the affordable housing front? Um, especially in, you know, really high cost places, um, or cities, California, you know, opting of big cities like Austin, you know, what would you like to see them do on the affordable housing front?
1: Well, the, um, uh some people think of housing as infrastructure i i I happen to think it is an important part of our infrastructure but it hasn't been traditionally defined that way however we do know that at the moment our infrastructure challenges and our housing challenges have one thing in common and that is we're not building enough we're not building enough housing to meet the demand whether it's rental housing we're in america today There isn't one single city in America where a family earning the minimum wage can afford the fair market rent on a two-bedroom apartment. It just doesn't exist. In Austin last year, rents went up 40% because the demand for rental was so much greater than the construction underway, the number of units available. The same thing is true for entry-level homeownership, for the home prices are out of line with the salaries of the young people who are forming households who want to buy a home for the first time that is a major problem for our country not just in the fact that young people finish college and have to go back and live with their parents or have to stay in an apartment for longer than they ever wanted and cannot uh, invest in home ownership those are those are serious problems but uh, socially uh, psychologically but they're also very damaging to the future of the country because for most Americans, their ticket to the middle class, their ticket to owning something, their ticket to having any appreciable, measurable net worth is their home, the equity that they're building up in their home. You know, they pay $300,000 for a home and at some point a few years later, they have 200000 of it paid off. That's 200,000 when they sell that house that they have in their pocket. And, and with that, they can start a new business or later send someone to college. But if we take that mechanism out of the equation, that, that, that chain of building wealth, which is what home ownership is, then as a country, I think we suffer deeply. It, we, we help, make fragile, hollow out our middle class. So I, I, I think it's critically important and, and cities are functioning on, I mean are doing a whole bunch of things first of all we need more supply incentives from the federal government in the form of funding for public housing for for for, for apartments we need uh, so that that's just more, more 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 money that needs to be allocated low income housing tax credits and other things but localities can do a lot also For example, remove some of the zoning restrictions that make it uh, impossible to build uh, because you have to build at such a size that it's not affordable. Uh, Allow for more density. Allow for accessory dwelling units to be built on the same uh, same property so that a second generation, parents, grandparents can live in an adjacent unit on the same piece of property. That's not allowed in, in a lot of places. There are many, many places where we can just tweak the rules and change the, the, what's allowed and make things more affordable. Uh, controversial in some cases, but I think what's more controversial is, is, is if we deny
2: people the benefits of living in a decent place. So I'm from Philadelphia, and we, we did a um, pretty popular 10-year tax payment to really spur development in the city. Um, and you could see the the growth in permits and and building and you know influx of younger j- people into the city, right. uh, you know during that time. So I mean, why is something that simple just not massively adopted across every city to sort of just you know give a kickstart to affordable housing?
1: Yeah, I think more and more cities are, and and I would say this. I, I've been uh, involved in public life for I guess forty plus years now. And I've never seen a time when housing had a greater prominence in concerns, in polling, in cities than today. And um, so I think more and more cities are are, are acting. For example, cities are passing bond issues. They never included housing in bond issues before, but now more and more cities do. Um, And they put together housing trust funds and they put together anti-displacement strategies, so people don't get forced out of their neighborhoods when we do development and the, and, and and the uh, values rise around them and they just can't keep up with the taxes. So more and more cities, I think, are getting engaged in the affordability fight. I'm the board member I'm a board member at something called the Bipartisan Policy Center in Washington. And one of our subgroups is a housing center, the Terwilliger Housing Center. Our whole focus there is let's focus on supply and preservation of the stock that we've got. But but it, we're just violating the basic rules of economics. We've got so much demand, so little supply,
2: and the prices are going to rise. Sure. And you see Governor, uh, Governor Newsom, uh, I think that's one of his the latest initiatives, right, to get supply of housing up. So it's certainly, you know, you're concerns and your points are being echoed in, in and yeah. larger. Yeah. That. So I, I want to sort of piggyback from affordable housing into sort of your thoughts on the pandemic and how cities have sort of recovered and some are still recovering, you know, obviously affordable housing was one of the issues that has come out of the pandemic, uh, especially as prices have sort of spiraled higher, mm-hmm. but, you know, I think public safety is one of the larger concerns that a lot of people have, and you being a former mayor, you know, what is your take on sort of the, the issues that some of the larger cities are struggling with right now as we sort of wind down from the depths of the pandemic?
1: Well, first of all, I think the pandemic was far more impactful than anyone could have imagined. And I don't just mean the numbers who were sick, the numbers who died, those are all tragic, but also in the way it's changed our way of life. Uh, the number of people who are not coming back to the office, the number of people who are coming back but only with the proviso that they can come in for three days and have Monday and Friday off, for example, uh, the number of people who are afraid to ride in mass transit, yeah. uh, just, just uh, the, the number of businesses that closed and are not back. Yeah. When I walk the streets of New York and I have an office for uh, American Triple I in the Chrysler building, and walk the fifteen blocks to the apartment that I have in New York. I'm amazed at the number of boarded-up stores and shops and restaurants, in particular. And it's uh, it's got to have an impact on a city and its budget, its finances to take that kind of a blow. Some are coming back. Some are coming back slowly, but it's been a problem. Now, I don't know how much of the crime epidemic, you can blame on the pandemic or whether it's just uh, people taking advantage of circumstances. It's unacceptable. And I think Mayor Eric Adams won election in New York, for example, because he was a police officer who promised he would get tough on crime. And I think he is working at it. But how do you stop one person who's mentally ill from pushing somebody on a subway uh platform in front of a train or shooting somebody on the train Uh, so there's going to be more and more cases and they're ugly cases Uh, but i do think that we're at the point as a society where we have to be much more severe much less tolerant and really crack down on people hurting people and whether it's uh acts of people who don't know what they're doing, who are addicted or who are uh, mentally ill, it's not fair to the rest of the society to allow them to run rampant. And and so I think you're going to see a lot of cracking down in in that respect. As far as the problem of businesses coming back, that's going to take a while uh, because it's not easy to start a business. You've got to have capital. If you lost it all in the last round, it takes you a while to amass it. It is a massive undertaking to hire people to set up a place, to develop a product, whatever it is, and then offer it to the public. So we took a blow. The pandemic was a serious blow. Um, And in some sectors, they hadn't hardly recovered from the recession of 2008. And then the pandemic knocked their legs out from under them. We have no alternative but to continue to work at it. I think uh, our cities uh, can be back, uh, but I do think it's going to be a little bit different because some of the rules of the game have changed, and people want to work from home and, or at least work part time from home. And it's just a, 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 an issue of mathematics. There's fewer people shopping at the down da- at the at the neighborhood uh, at the downtown business uh, restaurants. Absolutely, you know? yeah. yeah.
0: I'm just curious, like while we're talking about the pandemic, at least on the infrastructure front, um, you know, with mass transit agencies like the MTA, um, thinking of San Francisco's uh, BART uh, system there, um, it seems like, and this is something my colleagues at Bloomberg have been covering, it just seems like they're going to have to rethink the way that they finance themselves longer term if remote work is really here to stay. I'm just curious, like what what you think of that, and um, obviously that creates questions about Um, whether that means more state funding or federal funding? Like, is that a shift that you're kind of keeping an eye on?
1: Well, they've always required state funding, local funding and federal funding. Um, And uh, it is essential that we keep that infrastructure in place. It's what makes a city like New York work. And what what will get New York back to a, a level that may not exceed the pre-pandemic, but it's going to be up close and therefore, you know, cannot be dealt with by just putting cars on the street, you know. Um, so whatever funding measures are required, uh, state or federal, will be part of the equation. You can bet on that.
0: Definitely. Um, I want to uh shift gears a little bit to talk about um some news from um your firm earlier this year, which was just about the investment that um Siebert received from Apollo, which was um an undisclosed amount. If you decide that you'd like to disclose what that amount was um, today. Um <laughs> but basically this um announcement was is is thought to increase the ability of Siebert to underwrite munis, both munis and equities. So I'm just curious to talk a little bit more about that transaction um and you know your. Outlook for the firm from here?
1: Well, the the firm is a very strong firm. I I am the vice chair of the parent company of Siebert William Shank. And Siebert William Shank is the nation's largest woman-owned and minority-owned public finance firm and best performing. Uh, And it is now head and shoulders really above the the peers in terms of of the number of transactions, the size of transactions, and the Apollo investment just added more capital so that, you know, people could be brought aboard, equipment could be upgraded and the, and, and, and the, and the work uh, continue. Uh, it also had the benefit of of sort of setting the standard for what Siebert ownership costs so that it established a valuation for the firm. We hadn't had a good market basis before that, but it's a, a very solid firm led by a woman named Suzanne Shank, who's got 25 plus years now in the field and makes all of those lists of most outstanding women on Wall Street and top woman in public finance. Um, she's a great leader. I've had the good fortune in my life to work at the presidential level, to work with governors and mayors, uh, business leaders. And Suzanne is as good a leader as I have ever met. Uh, And surrounded by a good team, Chris Williams, which is the Williams in Siebert Williams Schenck, built a corporate finance firm that merged a few years ago with the public finance side. And it was interesting during the pandemic, when it looked like public finance might slow down because nobody in the public sector out in America was interested in starting new debt. So public finance slowed down a bit. Corporations needed cash to deal with the pandemic and the corporate side of the business picked up the slack. So we have a wonderful sort of hedging balance in the firm that has proven to be very, very positive. It's a, it's a, it's a good enterprise. Now, I am vice chairman of Siebert William Shank, but also am chairman of American Triple I, which is the firm that focuses explicitly on infrastructure. So I have multiple responsibilities in my life. Um, and uh, we have some of the, some cross-ownership between the two entities. And uh, uh, the, other, the other thing that I do is the, the infrastructure work explicitly. I wanna,
2: I, I wanna sort of tackle like more of a broad-based public finance question. I know that's sort of like one part of what you do, but it also bleeds into the infrastructure conversation. Yeah, big time, big time. Uh, You know, issuance for the municipal market is off about 17% this year. Not entirely surprising, just given the volatility, given where rates have have gone. I guess my question to you would be, you know, with all the things that need to get fixed um, and and need, not just once, are you surprised that, you know, issuers really haven't taken a hold of selling more debt? Because on a historical basis, rates are still low. They're just higher than they were last year.
1: I think as a former mayor, I can answer this best from that perspective. uh, When things are unsettled and there's this much volatility, you wouldn't expect mayors and their financial advisors to make a decision to get into the bond markets, into debt at the same rate as perhaps another time. Look, the the government put out a massive amount of money in in the American Rescue Act and the other pandemic-related sums. It came to trillions of dollars that were spent on the PPP program, money into houses for unemployment benefits, uh, money for medical equipment and supplies, uh, money for local governments to keep their treasuries strong during that period. So there was a lot of money. And it could be addressed for some cities more than they ever imagined they would have the ability to To distribute. Right. You have that. Now you have the Infrastructure Act, which which people want to say, well, let's wait and see what we can do with the federal money. Right. And and the other uh, one that I mentioned, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, which speaks to clean energy. So I'm not at all surprised if people hold their breath for a little bit and say, well, let's not run into debt while we have these other funds that we can put into play but i think the market the, the, the bond market is held up reasonably well and i would say that the american municipal bond market remains the most unique bond market of its kind in the world and the
2: most productive and i expect that it will continue to be over the long run i agree with that sentiment we we, we like to keep it interesting and unique that is that is definitely correct if there's no other there's no other source of capital for municipal projects
1: like it in the world yes and and look what we've done with it in terms yes. of building the country we have more to do and now we know we can access private capital as well yes and there there's all kinds of eric if you would look at the number of large state pension systems that now have an allocation for infrastructure in their uh, in their uh, allocation of their of their funds, their investments, you would be just flabbergasted. The, name the biggest Calpers, Calsters, Michigan, Ohio, Texas teachers, Texas employees, New York State, New York City. They're all investing in infrastructure through their pension systems, and we have new fund managers have come into existence have come into play. Some of the biggest names. Blackstone, Black Rock, Carlisle, uh, Aberdeen from England. I mean, you just go right down the line. Uh, uh, the biggest names, Macquarie, all raising, no mistake, billion-dollar funds. Five billion dollar funds. Mm-hmm. Billion funds. So uh, there's a lot of capital out there, and there's a there's a lot of elements at work here. But I I do think, you know, we know how to, we know. What the key is now to get infrastructure built in the country.
0: Um, I'm curious. I know that you mentioned when we when we started that um, this is like what you see as the golden age for for infrastructure. Is there anything that you're concerned about, or anything that keeps you up at night in in this space?
1: Well, I I, I think it's uh, you touched earlier on one of the things that should keep us all up at night and that is are we going to let inflation and 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 uh, the supply chain issues drive the costs up on materials and the cost of completing a project to the point that we use up the money before the project can be done and and then don't have enough you know to finish or have to raise additional capital for to finish jobs big jobs i'm talking i'm talking major highways and complete airport transformations and I mean, look—we've got some serious questions in the country that are related to infrastructure. Let me give you one. There isn't an airport in America, major airport, that's not thinking through the adequacy of its cargo facilities. Why? Because during the pandemic, people learned you don't have to go to a bricks-and-mortar store or the mall to shop. You shop on the internet, right? And what does that product? How does that product get to you? Through an airport, usually. Does it have to go across the country? So, all of a sudden, airports find themselves just overburdened with the amount of cargo that they have to, 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 to process every day, and they don't have the warehousing, and they don't have the robotics, and they don't have the machinery to do it. So, they're, they're gearing up. There's an example of a real-life implication of how you have to modernize the infrastructure of something you didn't make the connection with before the pandemic changed things, right? What about the ports? We just came through a hurricane down in South Florida. And it has the effect of raising water levels in key places. We have cities that are vulnerable, not just to ocean level rise, but to extreme storms. The port at Miami, the port at Houston, the port at New Orleans, the the East River in New York, the ports at Norfolk, right? So the technology now exists to to, to deal with those ports. we have big jobs to do what is it so 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 in terms of you know keeping one up at night are we going to be able to make the system work so that we can deal with these needs as we have promised to try to do right that's that those are the challenges i think that that that, that make us all keep our uh, keep our focus i would add to that the generic problems that i mentioned earlier Do we all understand that we need to be doing something about climate change in key ways that involve our infrastructure? Do we all understand that there's a national environment out there that is very dangerous and that we have to keep our eye on our trade relationships, competitive relationships and national security relationships, whether it's in Asia, whether it's in in Russia and Eastern Europe, whether it's in the Middle East? Those are all things that could disrupt our hopes our plans our dreams for the country so luckily i sleep well at night <laughs> even with these things <laughs> but 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 if if, if if for most normal people it might it might keep you up at night <laughs>
0: um with, with that said if um if you were to talk to a, a new a new mayor what would your advice be to them at this point
1: i would say a couple of things one You are blessed to have the best job in America, which is to be the mayor of your city. People look to you, there's only one mayor in the city, and you can get an awful lot done from that position. So think big, think about where you want your city to go. Cities can be masters of their own destinies. The the, the decisions that they make internally, how they use their resources, how they build their infrastructure can touch lives. Cities can be a sort of a, a focal point for the things we want for our society better educated children, more equity in the workplace. A lot of those things can be impacted by the quality of our city economies, right? So that's point one. And I think point two would be uh, let's make this an era where, where, where many of the social objectives we have for our country related to equity related to diversity related to um, quality of life and a decent life for, for people, including a word we mention in the Declaration of Independence, happiness, but we don't frequently mention in our public life becomes a measure for, 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 for life. And that can happen in our cities. So I, I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a great time for our cities America is, without a doubt, a metropolitan nation. As go our metropolitan areas, so goes the economy and the nation as a whole. Let's keep them strong. Let's think about the future and let's invest.
0: Well, thank you so much, Henry, for joining us. This has been a really great conversation and I know thank I have it a lot, so thank you.
1: Thank, you, very thank much. you, Amanda. You're a good interviewer and Eric, thank you for your questions as well. Absolutely.